welcome back to the Past and Present Podcast. This is Kim Groves, hoping you've been having a lovely week. I hope you also had a chance to explore more fully the topic uh, from our Monday podcast on the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I'm really enjoying our discussion on the Sermon of the Mount, and it's actually in helping me walk, grow my walk with God. And I just enjoy bringing this podcast to you twice a week. And it's just such a light in my life. And I'm really hoping it can be a light in your life. I also enjoy how um, I've sort of changed my format a little bit to be more conversational and a little less scripted. Now I feel a little bit more comfortable behind the microphone after doing this for a couple of months. Now today, um, we're going to do a two-week series on... Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark has always fascinated me, both from a, a, a biblical perspective and a historical perspective. Because nearly every single culture in the world has a flood narrative of some kind. Um, and the Chinese, the Japanese, um, obviously the um, uh, uh, Jews do via Noah's Ark. Um, and in the Middle East, there's also another uh, flood narrative uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's always interesting to compare these stories and see this same, these same themes um, occur time and time again, which actually, in my sense, in my mind, actually solidifies the biblical narrative of Noah's Ark. And that that such a global event did happen. Now today, our article we are back, once again in the Wayback Machine. We are our article is from the June 1976 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, and it is called "A Futile Quest: The Search for Noah's Ark" by William H. Stibing Jr. And he starts off his article by bringing in the contemporary news. And for those of you that have been around long enough to remember Reader's Digest, um, I know I did. I spent many a day or many an hour reading them in my uh, hairdresser's uh, 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 salon and reading all the, the humor uh, in it. But there was, a, a, according to this, in 1975, there appeared in... Hold on, I have my notes here. Uh, in Reader's Digest, in September of 1975, there was an article that appeared by G. Gaskill called The Mystery of Noah's Ark. And in 1975, this, actually, uh, this article suggested that the remains of Noah's Ark may yet be found atop Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. And there's, there, there was generated a lot of interest in the idea of trying to find Noah's Ark. So many individuals have explored Mount Ararat in the past, according to this article, 30 years. So we're talking from like the 40s on. Um, and even there have been some even more recent excavations and expeditions to Mount Ararat. But at the time of this article, it's, it's, we, I've got to sort of give you a, a heads up to the politics at the time. And again, this was 1976, so we're in the heat of the Iran-Iraq War. We are um, also, uh, 
there's a lot of instability in the region. Turkey and Greece were fighting over Cyprus, so there was tensions in that area. So there was a lot of, of political upheaval in the region, which made it more difficult to mount expeditions and excavations in Mount Ararat. So um, everybody who has a passing familiarity with the Bible knows the story of Noah and the Great Flood. It's one of the best known stories, and there's always been a lot of contention about it. Um, before this article and since. So since the 17th century and the beginnings of modern geology, prehistoric archeology span and evolutionary theory, there have been scholars who've challenged the scientific and historical validity of the early chapters of Genesis. So these are the creation chapters. And there's, there's some hot takes on how exactly a day was in, in biblical creation, so forth and so on. Um, so there's those, those initial chapters of Genesis, uh, probably about the first third of Genesis, there's always been a lot of contention about it. Um, and uh, the accounts of the creation and the flood generate the biggest contentions. Uh, can, can, people are convinced, like I am, that the Bible is the literal word of God, verbally inspired and inerrant. And they sought to prove that Genesis' version of man's early history is correct. Now, I, I am not such a strict adherent that I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, contextualize the idea of a day being perhaps not a 24-hour period. Um, uh, again, we talk about a day uh, in, in Revelation, uh, a, a second being years and years and years. It to do the Almighty. So I, I ascribe to that narrative uh, in terms of when we're talking about a debt. <coughs> Excuse me, allergies are still kicking my butt. So archaeology has played a very ambivalent role in the debate. In Europe during the 18th and 19th century, human artifacts and skeletal remains were found associated with the fossils of extinct animals in a number of places. So these finds led antiquarians and geologists to abandon the widely accepted chronology which Archbishop Usher had worked out from biblical accounts. So Archbishop Usher basically was very strict in terms of his reading of, of Genesis. So according to Usher's 17th century calculations, the creation of the world had taken place in 4004 BCE and the Great Flood had occurred in 2348 BCE. I believe this is, honestly, I believe this is horse hockey. These dates were printed in the margins of some editions of the Bible in the minds of many they had assumed an authority. Now, as I was saying, um, many uh, people assumed that Usher's dates, they assumed an authority and sanctity as great as the Bible itself. But again, I don't ascribe to that theory at all. Um, the evidence of the extreme antiquity of man could not easily be reconciled in a very short chronology suggested by the scriptures. So basically, archaeology helped disprove a very structured sense of time in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. It doesn't dispute anything in Genesis, but all it does is it restructures our thinking of what a day was, what a month was, what a week was, etc., etc., 
So, on the other hand, a number of early archaeological discoveries in the Near East tended to confirm the accuracy of Bible accounts. And we've been discussing various things that, have, um, that we have seen. <clears throat> so, many assume the unity of biblical teaching, <coughs> either it's all true or it's all false, find varying accounts in the book, books of kings are often cited as proof of the historicity of the Bible as a whole. So, anyway, moving forward... Um, in, in 1872, George Smith, an assistant in, assistant in the Assyrian section of the British, British Museum, made a discovery which raised the debate to a new level. Now, he had been sorting and classifying some cuneiform tablets found at Kayunjik, which is ancient Nineveh, which I'm going to refer to it as Nineveh in our, in our talk, by earlier British excavators, when suddenly his attention was seized by a line in a broken text, which seemed to be part of a myth or a legend. <clears throat> the sentence read, On Mount Nasir the ship landed. Mount Nasir held the ship fast, allowing no motion. Now, he quickly read down the rest of the column and, and it read, When the seventh day arrived, I sent forth a dove. I released it. The dove went away, but came back. Since no resting place appeared, she returned. Then I sent forth a swallow. I released it. The swallow went away, but came back. Since no resting place appeared, she returned. Then I sent forth a raven. I released it. The raven went away, and seeing that the waters had diminished, she ate, circled, called, and did not return. So now Smith knew at once he had found a Mesopotamian version of the biblical story of the deluge. Now, Mesopotamia, as we have discussed in a previous uh, talk, encompassed what we would roughly refer to as modern-day Iraq. And the Assyrians basically came in and they um, took over that area after the Akkadians. So, now there's a gap in this text which could not be filled by any of the tablets at the museum. But when Smith reports this discovery in a paper that was read before the Society of Biblical Archaeology, the public interest was so great that the London Daily Telegraph offered to equip an expedition to Nineveh to search for the missing tablets. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry, my little girl keeps running in and out of here, so, um, and we're having a storm, so she's probably a little scared. So if you hear thunder in the background, it's it's from our storm that we're currently having. I know. <clears throat> um, in 1873, Smith arrived at Nineveh and began sifting through the debris piled up by previous British expeditions. And I get anxiety when I read that because I'm so used to the, the proper archaeological methodic method that is used to uh, uh, work a site. It just gives me anxiety to think of all this stuff just piled up in a big pile. Um, among the texts he recovered was a tablet containing the missing portion of the Mesopotamian flood story. Now, what Smith actually found was not a biblical account. It is part of the 7th century BCE Assyrian copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I had mentioned. And I actually had to read the Epic of Gilgamesh in college. And it's not that bad, actually, really. It's, I, love, uh, I love reading it. But fragmentary copies of the same work dating from the middle of the 2nd millennium BCE have since been found in the ruins of the Hittite capital at Bekazkoi. 
Now, portions of an old Babylonian version of this epic, circa 1900 to 1600 BCE, have also been discovered. And remember, this is in the mid-70s. However, without, even without the early fragments of the Epic of Gilgamesh, Assyriologists knew from the language of Smith's tablets that the story belonged to an era long before the 7th century BCE. So it actually predates all of this. Internal linguistic evidence indicates that the Epic of Gilgamesh and the flood story it contains must have been composed near the beginning of the Old Babylonian period, about 1900 to 1800 BCE, more than 500 years before the exodus of Egypt. So language evolves and it over time. And we, we actually have seen this in our own lifetime. Words that my grandparents and would would have considered not not actual words uh, are now considered normal words. Words even my parents would have not considered actual words. Things like woke and fleek and that kind of stuff um, are, are now are, are now in the Oxford Dictionary. And so I'm sure that language is is even developed in my time in words I never would have believed could have been uh, considered actual <clears throat> words are now in that dictionary. <coughs> so linguistics evolves over time and, and words are added and taken out of the dictionary as they fall into and out of use. So this is actually very normal practice. The Babylonian Assyrian flood story in Gilgamesh is so similar to the Hebrew account in Genesis it was clear that the two must be related in some way. So we're starting to enter into a chicken and, and egg sort of argument. So what, come, what came first? Was it the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Hebrew narrative? So a number of scholars argued the biblical narrative must have been derived from the earlier Mesopotamian legend. So this view became even more persuasive in 1914 when a study, when a when Arno Pobel published a very fragmentary Sumerian account of the flood, so this tablet containing this tablet had been unearthed in the University of Pennsylvania's excavations in Nippur between 1889 and 1900. The text was so badly damaged that only limited portions of the story survived. So enough remained, however, to indicate that the Sumerian flood story originally contained most elements of the old Babylonian version found in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, who were the Sumerians? Sumerians were non-Semitic inhabitants of southern Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, who first invented the cuneiform strip, uh, script. In cuneiform, the best way to describe it is cone-shaped. And... Um, and used widely in the ancient Near East and who created the earliest civilization known at present. Their culture was dominant in Mesopotamia from about 3500 to 2400 BCE, and they were later conquered by the Semitic ruler Sargon of Akkad. They continued to play an important role in Mesopotamian affairs until the end of the 18th century BCE. So again, most modern, most civilizations, most organized civilizations with government and diversification of, of labor and that sort of thing evolved in the area of river basins. So you're talking the Tigris and the Euphrates, you're talking the Amazon, you're talking the Nile, you're talking about the Yellow River, you're talking about the Yangtze, you're talking about um, in India. So Again, you're having all of these civilizations develop along river valleys. So 
Most of the Sumerian, Sumerian literary texts, including the flood tablet, were found in the archaeological layer belonging to the time of the third dynasty of Ur and the Isin Larsa period, which was 2113 to 1800 BCE. But the myths the tablets record are much older. So these were stories that were probably passed down verbally, generation to generation, and somebody got the genius idea to actually write this down. They reflect the social and governmental institutions which had disappeared among the Sumerians long before the beginning of the second millennium BCE. So it's thought that an original Sumerian flood story provided the inspiration for the various old Babylonian accounts. So this discovery of the Sumerian flood narrative confirms the age of the flood tradition in Mesopotamia and convinced most scholars that the biblical story of Noah must have had a Mesopotamian origin. If you remember, or if you read the, the Bible, Abram actually lived in Ur. So he was from that area, era, or area. So it, it's very natural to assume <coughs> that a flood narrative would have developed in this region. Okay, um, But others claim the Mesopotamian flood stories proved the historicity of the biblical deluge. Supporters of this view argued the similarities between the biblical narrative and the account in Gilgamesh were not evidence of literary or intellectual dependence, but rather that indicated the two traditions were independent accounts of the same historical event, which is what I've always believed, that they're two different accounts of the same event. <clears throat> and um, a, a, a great worldwide flood from which only one human family had been saved. Now, the Genesis account was taken to be an accurate record of what had occurred, while the Mesopotamian stories were thought to be derived from a tradition from a, that had been uh, originally accurate but had become debased by polytheism riddled with factual errors. So, uh, uh, without getting into the debate on monotheism versus polytheism, the, the general things, the general facts in Gilgamesh mesh with that of the Bible, but a biblical-centered view is going to be one that says the biblical account is the actual legitimate correct one, and all these other accounts are just passed down and kind of got corrupted over time. Now, in 1929, more fuel was added by Leonard Woolley's discoveries at Ur in southern Mesopotamia. They... Oh, some workmen that were digging through a pit reached what they thought to be virgin soil. But since the level of the virgin soil was not as deep as Woolley uh, had expected it, he ordered the workmen to keep digging. And they dug through about eight feet of clean mud containing water-laid mud containing no artifacts, and they encountered painted pottery and flint implements. So Woolley called over a couple members of his staff and asked for their explanation. And he says... They did not know what to say. My wife came along and looked and was asked the same question. She turned away, remarking casually, Well, of course, it's the flood. And that was the right answer. There was flood, because this was water-laid mud. This was mud that had been put there by water. So what exactly happened? So Woolley had thought he'd found this evidence of the great flood, which lay behind the Mesopotamian tradition. Now, this flood has not, was not a universal deluge, he argued, but it had covered most of Mesopotamia, which would have been the whole world to the prehistoric people who had lived there. Remember, they didn't know anything that was going on outside their little corner of heaven. In his opinion, 
The biblical story of Noah had been derived from the Mesopotamian flood accounts. So this is saying the Mesopotamian flood accounts actually launched the, the, the biblical version, not the other way around. Now, um, their conviction was strengthened when over the next few years, flood layers reported from Kish, Farah, and Nineveh, which were three other sites in Mesopotamia. Now, without getting into a lot of the weeds, in other sites, the flooding actually dated at different times. So in one area, there, um, uh, mounds in Syria and Palestine, such as Jericho, which we just discussed, uh, they've, they've had fairly continuous occupation, so show no signs of destruction by a great flood. Um, even in Mesopotamia, most sites <clears throat> produced no evidence of the flood. Um, and at those sites where flood deposits have been found, the date of the flood varies widely from 4,500 to 3,500 uh, BCE, 2,900 to 2,400 BCE, 3,100 to 2,900 BCE, and so forth and so on. So, again... These flood layers are the results of different local floods, which were no doubt quite common in that area as the river would flood and recede over time. And of course, weather, doing what weather does, occasionally you're going to have periods where it's going to flood a lot more than other times. Now, this cannot be, they cannot be used as evidence of the flood of the Mesopotamian tradition or of Genesis. Even at Woolley's Ur, the flood evidence he found did not cover the entire site, only just one little area. Now, since World War II, many believers in the historicity of the Genesis flood have centered their hopes on expeditions to Mount Ararat. Now, the Bible does not even name Mount this mountain as the one on which Noah landed. Genesis 8-4 merely specifies the region where the ark came to rest, i.e. the mountains of Ararat, okay, or a mountain in Ararat. Ararat is the biblical name for Urartu, as this area was known to the Assyrians. So Mount Ararat itself is located in extreme eastern Turkey, close to the borders of the Soviet Union and Iran. This dates the article. You're talking about the Soviet Union. <clears throat> it stands in almost solitary splendor, <coughs> rising to a height of over <coughs> 16,000 feet above sea level and providing a relief of almost 14,000 feet between its summit and the plains at its base. Now, since Mount Ararat is much higher than all other mountains in the area, its peak would be the first to emerge above receding waters if the whole region were under a vast amount of water in a flood. So this probably you know, basically explains why people assume it was Mount Ararat. So, um, now, we, I, 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 I have to spell this out for you. There is actually a group called Archaeologists, A-R-K-E-O-L-O-G-I-S-T-S, Archaeologists, as the searchers for the Ark have become to be called by themselves as well as by others. They provide a number of pieces of evidence, and I put this in quotes, to support their conviction that Noah's Ark has survived the centuries of top Ararat. So, uh... Barosus, uh, a Babylonian priest whose account of Mesopotamian history and Greek have survived only in fragmentary quotations, and Josephus, a Jewish historian whom we've already talked about, uh, mentioned reports that the Ark still existed in their respective eras. 
Medieval travelers like Marco Polo testified the Armenians of that day claimed the Ark was still on Mount Ararat. Shortly before his death in 1920, an Armenian-born American is supposed to have told friends that in I'm sorry, 1856, three atheistic British scientists hired him and his father to guide them up Mount Ararat to prove the Ark was not there. When the boy and his father led the scientists directly to the Ark, the scientists threatened them if they ever reported the incident. After World War I, a British scientist is supposed to have admitted in a deathbed confession that he was one of the three atheists who by death threats had suppressed their guides from divulging the fact of the Ark's existence. This deathbed confession is supposed to have been widely reported in many newspapers. However, we haven't been able to find any copies of these articles. In 1876, Sir James Bryce, a British explorer, found a large piece of hand-tooled wood at the 13,000-foot level of Mount Ararat. In 1883, a group of Turkish commissioners checking avalanche conditions on the mountain are said to have found the Ark and entered it, but no one would believe them. A Russian aviator supposedly spotted the Ark from the air in 1915, and an expedition was sent to investigate. Russian soldiers had located and explored the ship, but before they could return to St. Petersburg, the Russian Revolution occurred. The records of the expedition were lost and the number, members scattered. About 1937, a New Zealand archaeologist was making his way <clears throat> around the mountain near the snow line when he saw what appeared to be heavy timbers projecting from the ice. Only later that he realized these may have been part of the ark. During World War II, both American and Russian aviators are supposed to have seen the Ark from the air. The Russians even took photographs, which are reputed to have appeared in various U.S. papers. Uh, the story of one of the American sightings was supposedly reported in a 1943 Tunisian theater edition of the Army paper Stars and Stripes. However, these articles and photographs can't be located. In 1953, a geologist took six aerial photographs of an object he believed to be the Ark. He died in 1962, and no trace of his unpublished photographs has been found, though several witnesses claim to have seen them. A large piece of handworked timber was pulled from a water-filled pocket deep in a crevasse on Ararat the partially, in 1955. The partially fossilized wood was dated to about 3000 BC by a Spanish laboratory, primarily on the basis of its color and the extent of fossilization. But two independent carbon-14 tests by British and American laboratories have indicated a date of around 450 to 750 AD. An orbiting U.S. Earth Resources Technology satellite has taken photographs of Mount Ararat, which show a number of dark spots in the ice fields. One of these anomalies may represent the remains of Noah's Ark. Now, even if you aren't already critical of the story, You'll, you'll realize that most of the, above, the evidence I just stated rests on hearsay and that it cannot be verified by objective means. Now, some of it is also inherently improbable. So if this site had been known for generations, why was there not a, some sort of shrine built there or a temple or some sort of protective enclave built? Why wasn't it explored properly by other archaeologists? Um, in, in, the, in uh, the era when there was relative peace in that region. So, um, and also the story of the Armenian um, man uh, saying that he was threatened by the British uh, atheists 
these atheists lived thousands of miles away. What made them think? What made the Armenians believe? Why would why would the the atheists come back to harm the Armenian men if you know they lived thousands of miles away? Why would they have not just said, "Well, I don't care. I'm going to tell people anyway." Now, the only concrete evidence that, uh, was found by um, in 1955 by Ferdinand Navarra, and the anomaly on the satellite photographs are objective evidence, and they prove absolutely nothing. Man's lived around Mount Ararat, Mount Ararat for many thousands of years, and for at least the last 17 centuries, the natives of the area have regarded the mountains as the site where Noah's Ark landed. It would be unusual if through the ages no buildings, monuments, or other structures used, using wooden beams had ever been erected on the mountain near the edge of the snowfield. Is the beam found by Navarra from the Ark or from other, some, some other man-made structure? If the carbon-14 dates are approximately correct, the wood is far too recent to have come from the Ark. Now, as for the anomalies in the satellite photographs, there are too many of them, and most represent areas too large for the Ark, because the Ark was only supposed to be about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So, and it hold two of every species of animal and bird. And, and the whole idea of there being a, a, a boat that would hold that, that many species. So some supporters of the story speculate there are far fewer species of animals in Noah's day as there are today, and the animals may have hibernated, eliminating their need for food. Um, so, uh, however, it is implied in Genesis that the animals were to be fed normally during the time they were on the ark, and not all species hibernate. So, um, again, you have to suspend a lot of, in, uh, a lot of belief to uh, feel that God miraculously placed all the animals in a state of suspended animation. Um, so, um, the flood is not a natural occurrence, uh, though. It is a mighty act of God that's breaking into the course of human history. But the fact remains that the Bible does not mention or imply any miracles in connection with the animals on the ark. So, um, supporters of the flood story claim that many geological features of the earth, which would normally be explained as the work of millions of years, were actually produced by the turbulent waters of the flood. I mean, this again makes sense. We've seen this, especially in Japan, reforming um, the um, the shorelines uh, after the, uh, the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. Again, we saw this in um, Indonesia with the, the flooding, with the tsunami there. Um, so, although it's not changed very much in the ages since, now this theory presents its own problems. How the animals from the Ark get to Australia or the Americas after the Ark grounded on Ararat? More miracles not mentioned in the text must be posited. So again, you have to really suspect that the flood, if it was happened through God, it definitely had to have more miracle attached to it than anything else. So if you accept the flood account as history, one must not only forsake a logical or even literal interpretation, but must also abandon the principles and results of modern geology and prehistoric archaeology, both which deny the existence of a universal deluge during the span of man's history on Earth. So a second major reason why archaeologists and biblical scholars reject the quest for Noah's Ark lies in the biblical text. So it turns out that if you carefully read Genesis, 
has shown that there is not one biblical flood story. It's actually two. So there are two different accounts written by two different people. One is a Yahwist, um, which is an unknown author who probably wrote during the 10th century BCE. And the other is the product of an exilic or po early post-exilic priestly writer. So you have the J uh, writer, which is the Yahwist, and the priestly writer, which is the P writer. So basically these two people came together with their the two different accounts of the flood and meshed it into one story. The fact that these two biblical accounts have in common so many elements which are not found in the Mesopotamian story um, points to their common origin in a tradition which we might call proto-Israelite. But despite their common background, there are some significant differences between the accounts of the Yahwist and the priestly writer. Um, so, in the Yahwist version, Noah saves seven pairs of every clean animal and one pair each of those which are unclean, while in the priestly writing, there is no distinction between clean and unclean creatures. One pair of each kind is taken aboard the ark. Uh, Yahwist states that the flood was caused by rainfall and that it lasted 40 days. The priestly writer credits the deluge to rainfall and a bursting forth of the fountains of Tehon, which is the waters of the great abyss under the earth. <clears throat> and states the flood lasted for an entire year. So it's sometimes assumed that because the priestly uh, version was written down much later than the Yahwist, it must to some extent be dependent on the Yahwist version. However, this assumption is probably incorrect. The author of the priestly version seems to have been the recipient of a body of traditions which are preserved separately from those of the Yahwist, and which, through written, though written down later, were often as ancient in origin. The differences between the flood stories of the Yahwist and the priestly writer were probably the result of a common proto-Israelite flood tradition being passed out in oral form, i.e. from our Mesopotamian friends, um, from two different segments of the population or in two different areas of Palestine. So the similarities between these flood stories and the Mesopotamian accounts are far greater than those between flood stories found in other parts of the world. Not only do both traditions refer to a universal deluge of which one man is warned, escaping with his family and representatives of each animal species, but also both contain a divine command to make an ark and to caulk it with bitumen, an account of the landing of the ark on a mountain while the waters recede, the incident of the sending of the birds, the building of an altar, and the offering of a sacrifice by the hero upon descent from the ark. When all these similarities are added to the fact that the phrase about the gods or God smelling the sweet savor of the sacrifice is virtually the same in each version, and that both stories come from the ancient Near East where widespread interrelations of peoples and cultures is demonstrable, the probability of these similarities being due to chance is becomes almost zero. So in other words, the two stories are related to each other and they aren't independent of each other. So it's safely assumed that biblical flood stories and the Mesopotamian traditions are related to one another, but it is impossible to, at present to reconstruct the exact relationship. How many immediate, intermediate versions stood between the proto-Israelite tradition and those of southern Mesopotamia, we don't know. It is clear, though, that the Mesopotamian traditions have temporal priority and that they were the ultimate source of the biblical versions. So it's not saying that a flood didn't happen. 
<clears throat> it's not even saying it didn't happen the way the Bible said. It's saying that these two versions are reliant on each other and they're probably similar tellings of the same event. And that probably one or both of the biblical writers pulled from the Mesopotamian tradition when telling the story because things do get lost when they're passed down verbally. So the Genesis flood stories are legends, not a history. An attempt to locate the remains of the ark can only result in a waste of time and money. Uh, the importance of the biblical flood narrative goes beyond the question of their historicity, for they testify to the convictions of the people who wrote them. Uh, along with other material of mythical or legendary origin, much of it also from Mesopotamia, the traditions about the flood were used by the biblical authors to perform to form a prologue for for the history of God's dealings with the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, although we have the, the Yahwist and the priestly versions that use material that was ultimately Mesopotamian, the perspective from which they viewed their narratives was quite different. Now, um, because they have different perspectives, uh, heavenly perspectives. So, according to the bi biblical author authors, the flood was sent as a last resort when men had become so sinful that God could do nothing else. It was punishment for moral offenses, and it was deserved. But God, although just, is also a God of mercy, and upon seeing Noah's offering, he promised never to destroy mankind again, no matter how much we deserve it. Thus, the flood story is used to add another part of the general backdrop against which Israel's salvation history will be played. When even the descendants of the faithful Noah go wrong, God calls a special family, which becomes a people, to serve him and become his instruments. Now, the rest of the Old Testament describes Israel's struggle with that call. So, I think I'm going to end our talk there today. Um, again... Uh, this article was was from the June 1976 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, and it is, is entitled A Futile Quest, The Search for Noah's Ark by William H. Stibing, Jr. I always encourage you to write me, email me. I can be uh, emailed at kimg at past and present podcast. At G, I'm sorry, kimg.pastandpresentpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at, at podcast underscore past, and on Facebook at Rebirth Network and Rebirth Encouraged, both with a purple heart between the word words. I hope you will join me on Monday when we will be discussing murder and anger uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Again, this is Kim Gross. Hoping you have a wonderful weekend and that you stay blessed and unstressed and unbothered by the rest. Have a great weekend. <laughs>